Good morning, Living Water. Two weeks ago, we began a series called The Questions of Jesus, and the idea was if you had five minutes with Jesus, if you could just sit down one-on-one with Jesus and ask him any questions, what would you ask Jesus? And those questions can range from, can you make, I think it was mermaids come to life, um, you know, why do you allow things to happen in the world? Some of them are deeply personal, like why are you allowing me to walk through what I'm walking through? Why does it hurt so bad? I think we all could probably come up with a question or two for Jesus. And the cool thing is, is those questions are welcome. I don't think he rebukes us for asking those, those questions. But the idea of this series is to kind of flip the script for a moment and just consider this. Instead of us asking questions of Jesus, what if we took a few moments just to listen to consider the questions that Jesus asks of us? And as we've been saying for the last two weeks, Jesus asks a lot of questions, over 300 questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels alone. And when Jesus asked the questions, there was purpose behind those questions. He didn't just flippantly ask a question, but they would be in the middle of a deep conversation or maybe they were thinking some thoughts and Jesus would just throw this question out. And those questions were designed to wake up the listeners. It was designed to kind of catch their attention and make them think about what their response is going to be and to prompt them to respond um, in in a way that uh, would change their life. Hopefully, it would give the opportunity for a truth to be taught, and uh, it it wakes us up, causes us to think. And hopefully, as we consider the questions of Jesus, um, it has a, a dramatic impact in our own personal lives. And so two weeks ago, we began with what I think is the most important question that Jesus asked, and it's the question that he asked his disciples. He said, first... Who do men say I am? And they responded, well, some say John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then he turned to the disciples. He said, yeah, but who do you say I am? And we know that Peter stood up and he said, you're the Messiah, the one that was sent from God. And he says, hey, man, Peter, you nailed it. Well done. Great job. And so we begin with that most important question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And what I shared that week was the key to life, and you could unpack this for a long time, but the key to life is knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus. The key to life is knowing Jesus. Jesus was so much more than just a good man. Jesus is so much more than just a good teacher. Jesus was more than a miracle worker. He is the Messiah sent from God to save our us from our sins. Amen? So knowing who Jesus is. The Bible says the demons know about him, but they shudder in fear. So to know Jesus on the level where we're like, I believe he's the Messiah sent to save me from my sins and to trust him with my life. And the second week, we kind of unpacked that trust a little bit more, uh, this thing called faith. For Christians, that faith begins with reason. Right? We, we start to discover the truths that scriptures teach us about uh, a God, about Jesus, and we have to reason first. But at some point in the Christian faith, that reason travels from our brains. Uh, that, you know, we're using, we're doing this mental math and we're thinking through things. It travels from there to our hearts and we apply it as truth. And so what I shared last week in the message, um, where is your faith? Remember, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples in the middle of a huge storm. Jesus was sleeping and they wake him up and said, don't you care that we're perishing? And we're going to die. And Jesus gets up and he does something that they've not seen yet. And he calms the wind and the waves with a spoken word, peace, be still. And it freaks them out. Right Now they're afraid of Jesus, who's in the boat. But for a moment, they're like looking at each other, mouths agape, open wide, and like, who is this man that commands the wind and the waves? Jesus then turns to them and says, hey, guys, where is your faith? Not you don't have faith or little is your faith, but where is it? I mean, you, you, you declare that I am who I say I am. This is your opportunity to demonstrate it in your actions, and they didn't. Where is your faith? And so what we talked about last week was the Christian faith begins with reason, but it's completed only by faithful action and obedience. Faith without works is dead. So listen to this. It doesn't matter what we know. It's what we do with what we know that matters. Amen? 
So that was last week, and where is your faith? And today, I want to wrap up with a a question I believe is a beautiful question. It's an important one. In fact, it's so significant that Jesus asked this particular question three times. The question, do you love me? And we're looking at John chapter 21, if you want to turn there, at the restoration of Peter. And I'm thankful that John included this in his gospel because it's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John records this this interchange with Jesus between him and Peter, and he restores Peter with this one question, do you love me? And so what I want to do is I want to read briefly verses 15 through um, 17 in chapter 21. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to spend a little time, I guess, more than those verses. There's a lot more to be shared there today. So read with me in John chapter 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Father, I thank you for your word, and I just ask in this moment, I humble myself before you, but I know that you can do what I can't do, and as I communicate this very important truth from your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would connect the dots, that you would allow us to see the truth that you have for us today, Uh, Lord, and just to be changed today as we consider uh, this uh, narrative in Scripture and how you restored a fallen brother, and that we would be encouraged and also uh, maybe educated a little bit as a church as we go forward. We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by asking the question, have you ever made a mistake in life? Everybody raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, I'll assume you're lying, and we'll change the subject to lying. We've all made mistakes, right? The Bible says that all of us fall short of the glory of God. No one's righteous, no, not one. So the reality is, is all of us are going to make mistakes from time to time. But how about this? How many of you have really blown it in a big way? You don't have to raise your hand, but we all know someone, right? I mean, I've blown it so bad that I don't think I'm going to be able to recover from this. For someone, it's infidelity, and the marriage has been just severely damaged, and they think, man, there's no way that I'll ever be trusted again. There's no way that I'll ever recover from this infidelity. And for some, it was a financial mishap. You're like, man, I I lost my job as a result of it. There's no way I'll ever be able to be trusted again or to recover from this. So maybe we've not experienced it or we know somebody who has, but I think that we can all probably relate and know that the reality is is as Christians that are walking by faith, sometimes like a little toddler, we will stumble and we will fall. We will falter in our faith. That's a reality that we better be aware of or we're going to get sucker punched one day and we'll be victims ourselves. But the reason I bring it up is because we're looking at this restoration of Peter, this man that, that we, we like to poke fun of because he was a, uh, you know, emotional and he responded too quickly sometime. But Peter fell in a big, big way, and this is our record in Scripture of his restoration. I think there's a very important lesson for us personally and as a church to learn about the restoration of those who fall. And I would say this. It has been said one of the most neglected ministries in the church today is the restoration of fallen believers. Did you hear me say that? One of the most neglected ministries in a church today is the restoration of someone who's fallen into some sort of a sin. And some of it is innocent enough, like, hey, we just don't know how to handle this thing. We don't know how to, I mean, it's just like, "Mm, just don't talk about it. 
Some feel like they've got it all figured out, and they, and they arrogantly go approach it. It's like a bull in a china closet does a lot of damage. And so let me just say this. On behalf of all churches who've ever screwed up at this, and if you're a recipient of that or you've been hurt by church, on behalf of those churches, I'm sorry. I think they handled it wrong. Amen? So as we look at this restoration process, I do believe it is a need. Um, and some of the reasons we avoid it is no one likes confrontation. Like, man, I just don't really want to bring it up. It's the elephant in the room. If you're here today and you love confrontation, you probably don't need to be the one in this situation, right? Some say, well, I don't want to be judgmental or critical. I mean, when I bring up something there and we're trying to deal with a brother or sister who's fallen, it looks like we're being judgmental or critical. And some of them, maybe all of us are aware of our own shortcomings. Like, hey, listen, I am no angel, and so I don't want to appear to be a hypocrite, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm going to mind my own business and let the elders deal with it. That's what they're for, right? Hey, pastor, I need to let you know about sister so-and-so. Or about Mr. So-and-so, and you need to deal with it. Okay, bye. Listen to what Galatians says. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin. Dear brothers and sisters. Not pastors and elders. Dear brothers and sisters. That's you and I in the faith, right? If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently, say gently, and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So the question is, what does restoration look like? What does it look like? What can we learn from Jesus' restoration of Peter? Because the truth is this, and you need to know this. If you don't know this, you're going to learn in a really harsh way. Satan, the enemy of our souls, would love to separate you from your faith. What I mean by that is like, hey, he wants to, like you say you're a person of faith, and he wants to test that, and he wants to separate. Like a farmer would separate the wheat from the chaff. Jesus will respond to that later. As he separates wheat and chaff, he wants to separate us from our faith. He wants to cut our feet out from under us. So chances are, at some point in our walk, we are ourselves going to need restoration. So let's revisit this passage of Scripture and this story and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I want to talk for a few moments about the call because I think we need to see the big picture. The call of Peter, the fall of Peter, and then the restoration of Peter with this question and maybe a couple of observations there. So can we start there? So the call of Peter, I want you to go back with me in your minds. Three and a half years earlier when Jesus is preaching on the Sea of Galilee, which he would do many, many times. And it's in this particular time that he comes upon these guys that are fishing. They're fishing because that's their occupation. It's what they, they do. And so they fished all night because that's what they did back then. They would just fish all night and they would come in, in the morning, wash the nets, you know, all that stuff. But on this particular time, they're out there fishing and they fished all night and haven't caught anything. And so it says that Jesus, as he was teaching there, he calls these guys. He says to one man, let me get in your boat and push off from the land a little ways. So he taught the people. That boat was Peter's boat. And so after he got through teaching, he said, now let's push out into the deep and let's go fishing. Peter's like, Lord, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. But at your word, I'll do it. So you know the story, right? They push off, they, they, they put the nets down, and they get a haul that is so huge, it's the miracle of the catching of the fish, right? And so they get this, the nets begin to break. Peter's response, and I think this is key, he says, oh, Lord, please leave me. Jesus, you don't belong in the boat with me. Leave me because I am a sinful man. We see the humility of Peter right there at the very beginning. Um, here's a note to each one of us. Jesus didn't call Peter to be a disciple because he was perfect. Okay? You need to know that. Sometimes I think we, we lose. Oh, he just calls the, the perfect, the spit shine, the polished, the ones that got all their ducks. No, no, no. He chose some really jacked up people, and all you got to do is read the scriptures. 
So but to Peter, Peter realized, he says, please leave me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, Peter, you'll be fishing for people. I'm going to show you how to be a fisher of man. You'll be a fisher of people. And as soon as they landed, that day it says they left everything and they followed Jesus. So we're starting off on a a great foot, right? Jesus shows up. There's this huge miracle of the catching of the fish. He says, Peter, you're the guy. Peter's like, man, I'm a dirtbag, Jesus. I don't deserve to be with you. And Jesus says, I've called you to be a fisher of men. So fast forward three and a half years, they're doing ministry together. Peter is witnessing Jesus saying all the things that he said about himself. He's watching the miracles, and Jesus asks him, who do they say I am? It's Peter that says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And like, well, all right, that's great. But then Jesus starts talking about, hey, I'm going to go to the cross as the Messiah. And Peter mistakenly says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So we go from Peter, you're the rock, you're the man, to Peter, you're Satan. Like, come on, Jesus. So we see this narrative unfold, and then Jesus begins to go towards the end of his ministry there, and it's the fall of Peter that I believe we can't talk about the restoration without including the fall first because it is so important to the text and what I want to share with you uh, today. And so we have Peter's call, and then we have the fall of Peter. Now, Now, let me find it. I thought I had it marked, but I didn't, so... Yes, I do. Bear with me. It's my first time up here. <clears throat> okay. You know the, the, the scene uh, in the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to go pray, and he tells the disciples, hey, you guys stay watchful and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus has already told Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to fall before the rooster crows. Uh, you'll deny three times that you even know who I am. And so here we are. Jesus is arrested. And Peter, the Bible says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, all the disciples flee Jesus at this point. They all fled. But we learned in one of them that it's John, uh, we assume it's John, and Peter who follow at a distance to see what's going to happen to Jesus, right? So it's there that they take him to the high priest courtyard, and it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and Peter, kind of staying at a distance, is kind of watching to see what's happening to Jesus. He's being falsely accused. He's being beaten. And Peter's watching this stuff take place, and then it happens. Some young servant girl looks at Peter and says, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Later it says that he does it again. They said, man, you've got to be one of his. I thought I saw you with him. And one of the texts tells us that he was related to the person that Peter had cut off the ear earlier in the garden. He's like, no, I know you're one of Jesus' followers. A second time, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And a third time, aren't you, your, your Galilean accent gives it away. You've got to be one of his. And he says, cursed be upon me if, I, if I'm lying. I don't know the man. Er, 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 rooster crows. Luke tells us that as soon as the rooster crowed, Jesus, it says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So he's seen him face to face. It's in the dark. Maybe there's some lights from the fire that are going on. But at that very moment when the rooster crowed, Jesus saw Peter face to face. I don't know about you, but I think that would hurt pretty deeply at that moment. The very thing you said that I was going to do, I told you it wouldn't happen. And it happened. And there's the rooster. And there's that look. And that look from Jesus is a pretty hefty look. A look of concern. A look of conviction. I don't know. But he looked at Peter. And so I would say that Peter's restoration process began there. That's why I said we can't look at chapter 21 of John without first looking at this narrative of the fall. Because immediately, listen to this, the rooster crows. A New Testament scholar, William Hendrickson, put it this way. This hidden memory will pull the rope 
that will ring the bell of Peter's conscience. As soon as the rooster crows, it's like an alarm goes off and Peter immediately hits conviction. He's immediately going, Jesus said that was going to happen. And it just did, right? So we see that at use. Then we see the look from Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter. Peter looks at Jesus. And then we, it says that he was reminded of the words of Jesus. And so we have the words of Jesus that flash through Peter's mind and immediately conviction takes place. Can I just tell you that before we have restoration, we have to have repentance. And for Peter, it began right then. All right, don't miss that, right? So Peter, it says he wept bitterly. So he goes out and he weeps bitterly because he knew that he had failed the Lord Jesus. Now, I would say this. Sorrow, um, godly sorrow, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, leads toward repentance, while a worldly sorrow um, lacks repentance. And so hear me say this. It's not enough just to be, hey, I'm sorry, I got caught. But it's like this repentant spirit that says, hey, what I did was sin against God. It's a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And that's key, right? That's key to restoration process. Okay, so now we have, you know, the call at the very beginning, the humility of him, and then we have the fall. And I would just say this, in every gospel, it responds or it records Peter's response to Jesus' prediction, right? And, and listen to what it says. Jesus is telling him, hey, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over, and here's what Peter says. Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away on behalf of me. He says, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. He's talking about the other disciples with him, like, hey, Jesus, I'm your number one main man. And these other disciples, they might cut and run, not me. Even if every one of these other guys deserts you, I never will. Again, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. That's Matthew. Mark says the exact same thing. The response of Peter in that moment. Luke chapter 22, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. John chapter 23, or excuse me, 18, I'm ready to die with you. What do we see in Peter's life at this moment? He's a little cocky. He's a little confident in his own ability to stay true to Jesus, and he needs to be humbled. And, and I think that what happened at his fall was a great humility that began when he realized, hey, Jesus told us to stay watching in the garden and to pray so we wouldn't fall into temptation, and we disobeyed that, and now here it is, boom, the great fall. Have you ever fallen? I got good news for you today. Jesus restores the fallen. It's John chapter 21. I love this. So, Watch this. John chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus begins the restoration process by setting the scene. Now, he's going to cue in the memory of Peter. He needs to use some things to just kind of jog his memory, if you will. So, chapter 23, verses 1, um, it says, Later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Why? Because I just failed miserably, and what I did before ministry was fishing, so I'm just going to go back to doing what I've always done in the past. And the other disciple says, we'll come with you. So they go out into the boat, but listen, they caught nothing all night. Sound familiar? They caught nothing all night. And it says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he calls out to them, fellows, have you caught any fish? No been a long night we've not caught a single fish verse 6 he said he said to them throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some so they did there's the obedience they did that and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it immediately i think it would have triggered a memory in peter's mind of the first call when jesus said hey come follow me and i'll show you how to fish for men that miraculous catch of fish so there's one thing that he uses a reminder to just kind of jog uh, the memory 
It says in verse 7, Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, I love this because here's how I'm wired. If I fall in a big way, the last thing I want to do is show myself, show my face to the one that I let down so deeply, right? I mean, Peter has denied even knowing Jesus. I mean, I'm in the back of the boat, right? If I'm Peter, hiding behind the other disciples, it's the Lord. Excuse me while I back up to the back of the boat because I don't want to look at him right now, right? I think that's just human nature. When we sin, when we fall, the last thing we want to do is come to the light. We just want to hide, but I love this about Peter because this shows his love for Jesus, right? He blew it big time, but he loves Jesus. And so when John says, I believe it's John, so the one that he loved, said to him, you know who that is? That's, that's the Lord. Peter had taken off his outer cloak for work. He puts it back on. He bails into the water, which it says is about 100 yards from the shore. Peter's like, I got to get to Jesus. And I love that. I think that's key as well. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the boat, loaded net, the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Uh, it's interesting, the word charcoal fire is only used two times in all of the New Testament. Do you want to guess what the first time it was used at? The fall of Peter. When Peter was outside in the court, of the high priest, he was warming himself, the Bible says, next to a charcoal fire. And here Jesus just cues up another charcoal fire. So Peter comes to the shore with the other disciples and he smells that familiar smell that would take him back to the moment that he had his biggest failure ever. This smell of the charcoal fire. I think Jesus is just setting the scene, right? He's setting, setting it up. And then I love this. It says, bring some of the fish that you've caught Jesus said, so Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to the shore. It says there were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast. And this is key to me because this shows inclusion. Notice that he didn't say, hey, you guys come have breakfast, but not you, Peter. We need to talk. Peter, you failed. In a, I need to sit you down for a while. You need to take a break. I can't include you in this stuff because, you know what, we got these rules and we have to make sure we follow them and, and you got to prove yourself to me. No, no, he included Peter in that breakfast. He says, hey, come and enjoy some fish with us. Come and have breakfast. And so it says none of his disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew at this point who it was. When he served them the bread and the fish, that would have been another reminder of the miraculous provision of the fish for the 5,000. It says this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. So if you're keeping up so far, if I've not lost you, you have the call of Peter, the humility of Peter in that moment. Jesus, leave me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, hey, I know that, and I'm calling you to be a fisher of men. And we see the journey that he makes, and then we see the climax where he gets to the point where he says, if anybody else does it, I won't do it, Jesus. I got this. I will not let you down. Bam, just like that, his feet cut out from under him, and he fails in a most epic way. And here's the thing, Jesus knew that it would happen. How do we know that? Listen to what Luke says. I think this is so critical and so important. So as Luke records Jesus' prediction of the denial, of Peter's denial, he says, Simon, Simon, that was another name for Peter, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it because he kind of gives us clarity on this from this singular or second person noun, plural versus singular. If you're an English guy, I butcher that. I flunked it. I didn't like English. But what we see in the text is Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he's saying, hey, listen, guys, Satan has asked to sift each one of you like a farmer would separate the shaft from the wheat, right? He wants to separate you from your faith. But then it says, 
but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon. Singular, right? He's asked to sift all of you, but Simon, I've prayed for you. Time out. The other disciples, what about me, Jesus? Simon, I've prayed for you. Why? Because he knew what Satan was about to do through Peter and what Peter was about to endure. And so he says, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So, listen to this, so when you have repented, from what? Jesus says, this is before the fall. When you have repented and turned to me again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. That's an imperative. I got a job for you. Once you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, so Jesus knew, okay? So now, go back to the scene. Jesus has had breakfast with these guys. He set the scene, and he looks at Peter after breakfast, and he said, Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me? Now, in the English, again, we have the word love, and we get a beautiful picture of the humility of Peter when you look at the words in the Greek, right? And you've heard me share this before, but there's a beautiful thing going on here, and you might miss it if you don't know that. And so, Here's how it goes. There's two words that are used in this particular passage. The word agapeo and the word phileo. Okay, agapeo is like a deep, committed type of love, right? Like a deep love. Phileo is brotherly love, okay? So Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you love me more than these guys? Because earlier on you said if everyone else would desert you, you wouldn't desert me. Do you really love me more than these guys? Here's where we see the humility of Peter. Peter says, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Earlier on, he said, if everybody else fails you, I won't fail you. What he's saying is I love you more than these guys do, Jesus. But now he's humbled and he says, Jesus, I made that mistake last time of being boastful about my love for you. And all I can do right now is say I love you like a friend. I love you on this level, Jesus. Jesus asked him a second time. Now, why did Jesus ask him three times? Well, I think if Jesus wanted to give the opportunity to Peter to reconfirm his commitment to Jesus because Jesus was denied three times by Peter. Now he's saying, I'm going to give you three opportunities to affirm your love for me. And he says a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with a deep, committed love? Peter responds a second time, Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you like a friend, phileo. The third time, Jesus changes the Greek word. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you phileo me? You know what that is? That's like Jesus saying, Peter, do you even love me like a friend? And then it says it hurt Peter that Jesus asked him a third time. I believe that's why it hurt him. Because now he's like, Peter, you say you love me like a friend. Do you even love me to that level? And Peter's response, Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you like a friend, right? We see a humbled Peter. Humility, repentance comes before restoration. And that's so key and so um, important. And so notice the commission now of Peter, and I love this, because I, I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised in church, uh, and I've taught on this in the past before, and I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but uh, you know, if you've ever been divorced, you're not allowed to be a deacon, ever, ever, in some churches. And you know what that communicates? God can't use people who made mistakes. And if that's the truth, then every one of us probably need to pack up and go home, because there's no hope for any of us, especially your pastor, because I make my share of mistakes, Right? And so I'm like, what do do they mean by that? And they go to a passage and they use it out of context and that culture then. He's like, hey, one woman, man. And so it miscommunicates, I think, to people. like, if you've ever made a mistake, God can't use you. And we've pulled that over into the church when it comes to this restoration of fallen people. Like, man, I love you. We still love you, but we're going to have to, we're done. Never any hope of you doing anything ever again. And I think sometimes we miss it. And who better to learn from than Jesus himself how to restore the fallen? Amen? And so Jesus deals with 
Peter. Peter's already repentant. Peter's already broken. He wept bitterly. He's turned. His humble attitude is back, right? He's gotten rid of the pride. And then listen to what Jesus tells him. Three times he asked him the question, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Remember when he called him, he says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. This time he's saying, feed my lambs. The second time he says, take care of my sheep. The third time he says, then feed my sheep. You know what he's doing? He just got elevated. He just got promoted after a huge epic failure. He was restored and he was elevated from fisher of man to shepherd of the sheep. Only God can do that kind of stuff. Amen? And so Peter now, and as you read church history, Peter was a rock star, right? Going up, telling people about Jesus and being a strong leader in the church. And so I, I love that, that he was elevated there. And I think the big picture for us is this. God restores the broken. He restores those who've fallen, who've made mistakes. If you've ever made a mistake and you feel like there's no way I'll ever be able to recover from this, I've got good news for you. God restores the brokenhearted. Right, But a key component, and don't miss this, is repentance. Because sometimes I think the church misinterprets and they're like, well, does that mean we just let everybody off the hook? No, no, there's consequences and we need to hold accountable things to the faith. The scriptures teach that. But when you have someone who says, hey, listen, I messed up big time and I just need the hope that I once held on to, right? I just need that reconnection with the body that I miss so, so greatly. I think the church misses an opportunity. I think we miss the opportunity to do that well. And I'm not blaming churches. I just think that it's human nature gets in the way. But what a great picture we see of Jesus restoring those who are fallen. That should be a great encouragement to each one of us today. So what can we learn about Jesus in the restoration of Peter? We can learn several truths about Jesus, such as his willingness to forgive and restore even after mistakes. His deep love and his compassion for his followers and his ability to provide guidance and purpose in their lives, even, yes, after a big fall. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? What can we learn about Peter? Well, the narrative also highlights Peter's growth and the importance of humility. What does the scripture tell us? Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And when you approach someone else, I remember years ago we were having to go um, confront an issue and, and I had a vehicle full of elders and I pulled over to the side of the road and I said, we need to check our hearts first because we're about to go to another brother who has stumbled into some sin and call him out on this and you better make sure, we better make sure that our hearts are in the right place because, you know, we could fall into the same thing. And so with humility, go and, and just lead a brother back onto the path. It's beautiful when that is followed. So what can we learn that humility and repentance um, in, in, in Peter's life is also key to uh, restoration. And so let me ask you this question. Have you, I, mean, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your experience is with church. I know I've seen it all. I've made phone calls to pastors. Hey, God's not through with you. God's still got a plan for you. I've made calls to people. I've, I've visited with people who stumbled and, and just lovingly caring, like, like, hey, listen, I am no better than you. It could happen to me tomorrow, but here's where we're at. Here's what we need to do, and just lovingly, carefully direct them back onto the path. I think that's the heart of Jesus, and that's what the church so desperately needs. Amen? It's to restore the fallen. So maybe you're here today, and you're like, man, Shane, I have blown it. i got things that I've done that nobody knows about but me and God, but the, convic- the rooster has crowed in your mind, Right? And that conviction is in full gear. Can I just tell you that God will never cast out somebody who is broken in spirit? Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh, God. I got news for you. He does not reject a broken heart, a repentant heart. 
And so maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know how I could ever recover from this. The first step is repentance. It's like, you know what, God, I, I confess. That was a sin. What I, I'm not asking to, to just get a pass. Like, hey, I did it, but I want you all, all to be okay with it. I sinned, and I sinned against you and you alone, God. I'm repenting, right? There's that brokenness, a sense of I need to turn from that sin and turn back to Jesus. And what we see in Peter's life is he wasn't done with Peter, right? He knew what he was getting when he called Peter in the first place. He called it out. Peter, this is how you're going to fall. And he did, and he says, but after you've repented and turned again, Strengthen your brothers. He still has a plan and a mission for those who've fallen. He restores those who repent. He restores the broken heart. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, man, God, I know you can forgive these people, but can you even forgive me? And the answer is yes, he can. Have you turned to him? Have you acknowledged the sin? Have you like, God, I, I, I own it, man. I, I've done this, and I'm asking you to forgive me and have the full confidence that he is no respecter of persons, and if he did it for Peter, he can do it for you, right? Church. Maybe you know somebody, and they're like, I will never step foot in the church again because of the way I was treated. That breaks my heart. It really does. And I've experienced both sides of that. Ignorance, just accidentally did it the wrong way and hurt. I've seen people arrogantly hurt people in that context. And my thing is, like, man, I, I just hope that our counsel to them would be like, hey, let's don't judge a holy God by our inability to keep his commands because we're not always going to get it right. Amen, church? And so... Maybe you're here today and just consider the question that Jesus asked Peter to you, one-on-one. -on -one, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Post-fall, humbled, in this moment, do you love me? Jesus is saying, get up, dust yourself off, and keep going because i got a plan for you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't kick us to the curb when we fail. And our failure does not dictate our future. Amen? But boy, it sure can define it. And it sure can. Romans tells us that God uses all things together for good to those that love him and called according to his purpose. And so I can see how God can use that in a powerful way for his kingdom, for his glory. Amen? Father, I thank you for, uh, Lord, the challenge today in your word and for, Lord, just the beautiful picture. I'm so grateful that you inspired John to include it in his gospel. That epilogue that was left out of the others so that we could see the rest of the story, the conclusion of what happened with Peter. And Lord, like Peter, so many times we kind of run off thinking we got it all figured out. And we get the cart ahead of the horse and we mess up in big ways. And Father, like Peter, we need those little reminders, those little cues, that brokenness, that humility but we need to come to you. And so I pray that if there be anyone today that's just kind of, they feel like they're the one on the back of the boat hiding behind the other disciples, that today they could have the courage to jump out of the boat and run to you, Jesus, the one who offers forgiveness and restoration. And God, I pray that you would just love on, encourage, and restore them gently as only you can do. And Lord, reaffirm your commission, your call, and your plan for their life. And Father, for the rest of us who sometimes we forget that we're human, I'm thankful that your word says you remember our frame. You know that we're dust. You know how prone we are to just mess things up. And so I pray, God, that we'd be extremely careful in that process, whether it's someone in our family, someone in our church or community who falls. Lord, that we would be so gentle and so careful to not speak where you've not spoken, uh, but to follow your example, your plan at the restoration process. And Lord, our hope is that uh, many people, uh, even though we we falter and we fail from time to time, that we could grow in our faith and we, can, we can't brag on ourselves about how great we did, but all we can do is point back to you and say, God is gracious, God is merciful, and he's worthy of all the praise in our lives.
So, Father, would you help us a church, as a church to figure this out and, and to do well? Would you help us, Lord, if we are struggling right now to have the courage to come to you? Lord, would you be uh, glorified in our lives and the decisions that we make? Holy Spirit, you and you alone know what we need to do and, and the step we need to take today. So I just humbly ask that you would do that work in our lives today. In, a hum- in Jesus' name, amen.